Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brad Cyphers. This week's discussion is brought to you by Sea and Shoreline and Resource Environmental Solutions. Sea and Shoreline is a Florida-based aquatic restoration firm that's on a mission to restore Florida's water bodies and to protect our coastline communities against severe storms. You can check out their projects at seaandshoreline.com. And of course, Res. Res is a national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. Okay, everyone. I think you're really going to enjoy this week's guest, Matt Leopold. Matt has been a litigator with the Department of Justice, General Counsel of the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, and the General Counsel of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. He's now a partner with Hunt and Andrews Kurth Law Firm, and he's here to help us understand the recent ruling in the Supreme Court case, Sackett versus EPA. But because this is my show, first he has to tell me his life story. Matt, thanks for being on Water for Fighting. All right, let's get to the hard part. You're born in Illinois. But your parents did the right thing and moved to Florida, I think you said before, it was second grade, is that seven years old? Yeah, that's about right. Exactly. All right. So are your parents from Illinois? Yeah, my dad was born and raised in Illinois, uh, LaSalle, Illinois, which is west of Chicago, a couple um, hours out in farm country. And my mom's from Eastern Tennessee. So we got Midwest and uh, Southeast, both in my background. So let's, let's pause for a second there with your, your mom. You said East Tennessee. That is a long way away from Western Illinois. How did they meet? They met in college and married in college. And then after living in, in Tennessee for a little bit, moved to Illinois where I was born in Dixon, Illinois, which is actually Ronald Reagan's hometown, um, where he grew up, and that's what that town is known for. You know, I don't have many memories of, of those days, and all my memories and formative years were in the Tampa Bay area, where Dad moved to follow his career as a stockbroker, and I grew up in Palm Harbor, Florida, just north of Clearwater. Right, and that's in Pinellas County for folks that may not be totally familiar with the area over there. I am a little bit because I grew up west of there, or sorry, east of there. It's hard to grow up west of Palm Harbor. Did you live close to the beach, Matt? Not far away. I Right down the road was Dunedin Causeway. And so for folks familiar with that area, you might have heard of Caladesi Island or Honeymoon Island. And so I spent many days as a kid going to the beach there, skimboarding, and just spending time outside. That's funny you mentioned that. It's, I was when I was a kid. We spent many a summer on Caldecia Island. My grandfather and folks who know from a previous podcast was in the uh, State Park Service when he retired from the Navy, and and one of his stations was Caldecia Island. And we used to get to spend a, a bunch of time doing the exact same thing. By the way, it's like I loved skimboarding when I was a kid. And so I was going to ask how you spent your summer days, but I think I know how now. Was it was it spending at Caldecia Island on the beach? I assume yes. My my background and upbringing was pretty normal in terms of Florida kid. I think lots of time outside, going to the beach, water sports, that type of thing. And also, you know, as I got into middle school, high school, working summer jobs. The first job was at a car wash. And so out in the hot Florida sun, washing cars, that Man. taught me a lot about life. 
Yeah, but yeah, it does. Was part of that no, discovering what you wanted to be when you grew up back then? What did you want to be when you were a kid, when you grew up? Honestly, uh, in those days, I think one of, one of my early jobs was working construction. And I liked carpentry pretty well back in those days. Working with my hands, I think, building, building things. As I started progressing through school, I think I, ultimately I, I realized my gifting lied more in language skills and, and uh, English became an area where I excelled. And uh, unfortunately, I have aptitude to argue. And so <laughs> it started to become clear more, more in college that I might be inclined for a legal profession. Let's uh, let's start at the, at the beginning there, well, sort of in the middle. You end up graduating from the University of Florida with a degree in history. How do you go from the obvious linguistic skills and arguing skills that you have now how did you get from, from discovering that in high school to a degree in history? Yeah. So I graduated from Tarpon Springs High School, which is the very northern part of Pinellas County. And if folks are not familiar with it, it's just a fantastic part of the state. The Greek community there is very robust and, and one of the biggest Greek communities in the United States, I think, outside of New York and Chicago. So, you know, had a unique experience growing up in Tarpon or going to school in Tarpon and then was fortunate to get to go to the University of Florida. I majored in history because again, studying history and language and, and, and those types of things were appealing. I really just picked the major because that's what I was most interested in. When I graduated, the jobs weren't necessarily abundant for history <laughs> teachers. Uh, <laughs> so I, I heard a good joke at the time, Brett, that, uh, what do liberal arts majors say after they graduate? You ever heard this one? I don't think so. I was you want a D, yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I heard that. I was the same as, but I was the same as you. I was like, I like, I want to study history because I like it. And then you get done, and it's like, oh my goodness, um, you know, I'm not uh, qualified to do anything other than teach history. Was there, were you at the University of Florida? Like, when did you discover that you wanted to go to law school? Was that something that you knew that you wanted to do after you graduated? Or, or as you said, you know, when you're talking about at that point of graduation, it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So let me, let me figure out what that, that next step is. How do you get from UF to now Florida State Law School? There's a little bit of gap there between, wasn't there? There was. And, and I was trying to figure out if that's what I really wanted to do. And, what I knew after I graduated college is I needed to spend some time kind of checking some things off off the list and dreams I had. One of those, so so immediately after UF, I, I got a temporary job kind of working at an insurance company and saved up some money and decided to go travel Europe for a while and do the backpacking thing. I had a, a great friend of mine who uh, was from Miami and he he spoke Spanish, and so we went over to Spain. And in one of my more interesting moments, he convinced me to run with the Bulls in Pamplona. So, um, <laughs> okay, so how'd that go? <laughs> well, I'm still here, and we we survived, right? Uh, no, no one was hurt, so that was good. And, okay. and we had more stories to tell for sure. Yeah, no, that's a that's a cool. Did you do the whole you know uh, white clothes, red handkerchief kind of thing? Yes. Oh. Yeah. No, all that, right? The whole town is dressed in red and white, which is quite something. Wow. So, you know, I was checking some things off off that list, trying to, and at the same time, had 
decided a career in the law probably was fitted my personality and skill and skills and interests. And so I started applying for law school at the time and I got into FSU, but before I, I was ready to go and ready to start in the fall, but I had been on some mission trips to Nicaragua in, in Managua through a church that I was attending. And I got a call from one of the contacts down there saying they really needed a teacher to come and teach because someone had, who had been scheduled to teach had quit and they didn't have anybody to fill various subjects in their, their high school in Managua, Nicaragua. So thankfully, FSU let me defer for a year and I took a, a detour down to Nicaragua. Talk about some of that. You were... Yeah, I mean, you, you described what the thing that you did, but you and I, you know, spoke recently, and we got into a little bit more of the detail on that. It's a really cool story, and it gave you, I, I think you said it gave you a lot of perspective in terms of the differences between Nicaragua and, you know, life in America. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. It, it was a real formative experience for me because, you know, living in a developing country like that was eye-opening. You know, a lot of people, I think, take short-term trips. But when you're living there for a year or more, you start to really see what poverty looks like and what it's like to be in another culture that's, you know, not the United States. And you you realize how the rest of the world lives. And it makes you very grateful for where you come from. But it also makes you realize that you need to do more and try to help the developing world and to the extent that you can. But the needs are enormous. And I think Nicaragua was the second, or at the time I was there, the second poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere behind Haiti. Wow. And so you did an, an entire year of that. What year was that, Matt? That was 2001. Okay. And so you come back and Florida State, what was life like in, in law school for you? Did you know that you wanted to get into the environmental side of law while you were in law school? Did you have your mind on that? Honestly, no. I was always an outdoors enthusiast, you know, and loved camping, loved nature, wildlife, all of that. And kind of pretty typical interest from folks in our in our world. But I'd never thought about how to combining that into a career, and and certainly not a legal career. So um, I started to learn about environmental law to some degree in, in law school. But um, how I fell into it really was through an opportunity that FSU provided. And I will say, you haven't made a joke yet, Brett, but I still cheer for the Gators, okay? Despite uh, going to law school in Tallahassee and living in Tallahassee mm-hmm. for a while. Uh, I, I, there was a guy by the name of Jim Tui who had been the, I think, the Secretary of Florida Department of Health and Human Services under Lawton Childs. And he provided an opportunity for one FSU law student to come up and work with him in the Bush White House, he, uh, President George W. Bush had appointed him as the director of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, and uh, he allowed the law student to come to a White White House internship, and I was chosen for that. And really, that was transformative for me in seeing how Washington works, and particularly, I worked on regulatory issues. Yeah, so <laughs> not to not to make the joke, because like to bring out too much of the the seminal breeding into me. My dad was a, a seminal as well. I know a couple of people that did undergrad at UF and then go to law school at Florida State, and usually they stick with the school, yeah, you know, their undergrad school. 
two former secretaries I'm thinking of. Uh, Noah Valenstein went to UF for undergrad and, and then law school here in, in Tallahassee. And he's a Gator. Like, But Ryan Matthews, who did the same thing, is incredibly the, the seminal part of him stuck. But I think that was something that he had uh, well before you know he started college anyway. So I thought that. But you're, I think you're just standard practice. Matt, yeah. Well, well, I went to U.S. in the Danny Warfel years, so it was a pretty good time to be a Gator. Yeah, not too shabby. Not too shabby. Um, okay, so you finish a year in the internship. Was that in the middle of law school or just after law school? Yeah, that was during law school. It was the summer of, of 2004 and just had some incredible experiences there. Most notably, President Ronald Reagan died this the summer of 2004 and the state funeral for him was held and i was there at the white house and had just opportunities to see all of that and it was incredible i've never seen anything like it people were lined up on the national mall and i think the the wait to go see him lying in state was over nine hours or sometimes more and just an incredible time i saw you know walking by the window of my office mikhail gorbachev coming by so it it, it was kind of a magical experience. But so after after it was over, I knew I wanted to to go back and, and really build my career in Washington. So I, I, I kind of through connections in Tallahassee and through connections in Washington, I heard about an opportunity to work for Governor Jeb Bush in his Washington, D.C. office. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we had met each other at that time, but I did work for, for Jeb Bush in those days. You said you mentioned you went to the the Washington office, the Washington, D.C. office for, for the governor. It always seemed a bit opaque to me in those days what the office did. Can you talk a little bit about the that time there? Yeah, and I, I think that's right. People vaguely know that Florida has a D.C. office, but a lot of people don't know what it does. When, when I was there, and I, I should know, it's changed over time. Each governor puts his own mark on it, but it's changed over time. But I think, you know, during the time when I was there, you had, it was very unique because you had the governor of Florida and the president of the United States, you know, being brothers. Florida, I think, had a lot of opportunity to really participate in important policy issues, not only at at the state level, but at the national level. And so, and the governor frequently came to DC, although he didn't stay at the White House typically. Uh, he, hmm. uh, for, it was, it was interesting. So our office was pretty large uh, because, because of those unique connections. And it was staffed with policy issue expert from each policy area. And we really reported, we reported to the governor's office, but also to the state agency. And so, my role that I fell into, and, and this is really where my career in, in the environment and regulatory space started, was as the environmental policy guy in the D.C. office. And I started working with FDEP at the time. Um, folks who people may know, you know, Jennifer Fitzwater and Mike Soule were, were at DEP at the time. I want to take just a moment to talk about my friends at Res. Florida is a treasure trove of natural wonders. But the cost of that treasure is our collective responsibility to restore and protect its ecological and water resources. That's where my friends at Res, the nation's leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, are at their best. With an extensive Florida-based team, 
Res provides top-notch, nature-based solutions that uplift Florida's ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. From water quality to hydrological restoration, wetland mitigation to coastal resilience, Res addresses the complex challenges facing our state with our unique operating model of taking full responsibility for their project's performance over time. Working with both the public and private sectors, Res is tackling the issues affecting Florida's water and land resources the most. Their long-term, cost-effective, and sustainable projects rehabilitate impaired ecosystems, helping them do the work nature intended. Cleansing water, sheltering wildlife, buffering storms, and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Join Res on their mission to restore and uplift Florida's ecosystems. Visit www.res.us to learn more about Res and their commitment to creating a resilient future for Florida. All right, let's get back to the conversation. And so, I mean, talk about a couple of those issues. I think one of them was Governor Bush had been a big fan of the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Program. And I think it was right around that time, Henry Dean was the executive director of the South Florida Water Management District, like you mentioned, Mike Solon, Jennifer Fitzwater at DEP. There was a big push to accelerate, and I think they actually literally called it that, accelerate, those projects. and in the Everglades, but part of that relied on those partnerships with the federal government at that time. Was that something that, that you were heavily involved in? Yes, definitely. And so the secretary of DEP at the time was Colleen Castile, and she was a frequent visitor to Washington, along with folks from the South Florida Water Management District. And the focus was really on making sure that the Fed lived up to their promise to be a 50% participant in Everglades restoration funding. Um, I still, I don't know that we've gotten there. In fact, the gap's probably even worse today than it was back then. And, and, and the Fed still have a lot to do on that commitment in terms of funding. But yeah, it was, that was definitely one of the governor's priorities was making sure Everglades restoration was on track and the state was getting out ahead and it was going to get credit in, in the various funding bills and the, the Waters Resource Development Act. Yeah, I typically use my quote fingers when I say the word partnership as related to uh, the federal government when it comes to the Everglades. And I think you're, I think you're right, but I think the state is is basically you know picking up the slack on on this end in terms of what they're trying to do now as well. Um, all right, let's get bored. You're leaving the Washington office at this point, but you're staying in D.C. because you pulled a rather long shift at the Department of Justice. You covered a bunch there, I'm sure, over that, that period of time, But and I want you to talk about some of that, but I'd, I want you to focus at, at some point on the Deepwater Horizon and the litigation attached to that. What did that entail? What was your role there? You can talk about the other things, but I, I, I do want to hear about the Deepwater Horizon part. Sure. Uh, yeah, so it was, I think, 2006, the time in the Washington office was winding down for me. I had I had started working in that office even before I I, I was while I was studying for the bar and I, I had passed the bar and I realized I, I had a choice either at this point am I going to be a real practicing lawyer or am I going to go more the lobbying policy route. Both were really interesting to me. Both still are interesting to me, um, and you'll, we'll talk more about about that but so i decided you know i really need to hone my legal skills as a young lawyer who'd never 
litigated, who've never really had an opportunity. And so through a number of things, I've applied for various positions at the Department of Justice, and I was offered a job with the Environment and Natural Resources Division, uh, doing a mix of, of litigation and policy and regulatory work and supporting the Assistant Attorney General over the Environment Division. You know, I've been fortunate to have a number of things happen in, in my life that probably don't deserve, but that was certainly foundational. And I spent six years at DOJ learning how to really be a, a real lawyer. And as you mentioned, BP was one of those things. I, but before I hit that, I will mention I was there. I started DOJ in 07 and President Bush was still in office. And in 07 and 08, I was deployed down to work on some border fence land acquisition cases in South Texas and near Brownsville and McAllen, Texas, where Congress had passed a law to build you know, over 300 miles of fencing by the end of 08. It was a big job to get that land, defend all these environmental lawsuits that were being filed. And so that I was thrown right into the fire on that. And so did you work on the the actual lawsuit part after Deepwater Horizon or was it was it only related to that that work in Texas? No. So, so yeah, the Texas thing, that that was the big policy initiative for the right. Bush administration. And then uh, I was a career lawyer at, at DOJ. I think folks know the federal government works a bit differently from state government mm-hmm. in that you're either clearly a political appointee of the president or you're a career employee in the civil service. And so 2008, President Obama was elected. So we had a new president, new administration. And so the policy priorities were shifting rapidly. And environment is one of those areas, as you know, it swings pretty dramatically between administrations. Sure. So I, I was working on a number of things, just doing legal work. And then in April 2010, we got word, there's a news, news breaking that, you know, the deep there was an explosion in the Gulf of Mexico. No one knew much about it, but DOJ immediately stood up a team to try to, first of all, assess the issues. And we knew it was going to be big. We didn't know how big, but I was part of a, a large team at DOJ that was stood up to help investigate the issues and come up with legal theories of liability surrounding the discharge of oil in the Gulf. It started off, I was there was an administrative investigation by the Coast Guard and the Department of Interior that I started going down to Houston and, and covering those hearings. And then that transformed quickly into a case being filed by private party plaintiffs and the, the U.S. got involved. And so we were. Re- I was part of the team helping to develop the case and under the Clean Water Act civil enforcement action, which ended up becoming the biggest, I think, piece of certainly environmental case in the in U.S. history. And, and it, it, I think still get, has the record for the biggest civil litigation in U.S. history. Ultimately resulted in a $20 billion settlement for the states and the federal government. Yeah, I think the benchmark up to that point, I think, was the Exxon Valdez spill up in Alaska. And yeah, it was uh, enormous at that time. That was part of you know my childhood anyway. And then yeah, and then seeing Deepwater Horizon, that was a, a big deal. Indeed. So when you and I met, you you had left the Department of Justice and you end up working as the general counsel at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection back here in Florida. How did that transition happen, Matt? Yeah, it, interesting question. So I knew that 
I was always had had interest in what was going on in Florida and the environmental regulatory space. And uh, we, at the time, I'm trying to remember the year Governor Rick Scott was elected, uh, but I had had some friends who'd gone down to work for the Scott administration. Folks at the time may remember he, he was heavily recruiting from D.C. and out other right. other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. I was asked, you know, would you be interested in leaving uh, DOJ coming down to work um, on Florida environmental issues. And, you know, given my prior experience working with the Bush, uh, Jeb Bush administration, there, there was a lot of synergies. And I had a growing family and my wife's from the panhandle in Niceville, Florida. And uh, going back to Tallahassee with young kids just made a lot of sense uh, at the time. I ended up getting the position of general counsel of DEP under Secretary Herschel Vineyard. You end up leaving. Well, you spend the you know obviously uh, serving you know with with Herschel under uh, Governor Scott, and you and I had met then. It's like, but you and I spent most of our time after you left DEP. But before that, let's talk about your time at, at a little bit of your time at at DEP. What were some of the the larger issues on your plate during your tenure there? Yeah, Everglades was still an issue, and uh, also. The numeric nutrient criteria from from a lawyer's perspective it was really a dream job because i got down florida was already in a in the midst of of litigation over numeric nutrient criteria and so there was a federal case challenging that that i got involved with you know the the secretary and the governor were championing uh something called restoration strategies which were trying to resolve the federal water quality criteria issue and additional funding for Everglades restoration. So I supported that effort. And I ended up even arguing uh, a case in the, uh, in, that was with the Miccosukee tribe uh, that had sued uh, the state and the water management district. And I argued a case personally on that. Um, other things that were happening at the time, uh, you know, drilling in, in Southwest Florida was a hot issue as well. And so there was a lot of activity around that. Let's, let's pause on the, to go back just a second on the numeric nutrient criteria. At the time, it was a bit uncommon, yes, in terms of using numeric nutrient criteria? Yeah, it's something that EPA doesn't do all that often is make what they call a necessity determination under the Clean Water Act that a, a narrative criteria, which most states have in their state programs, are, is insufficient to protect the natural resources and water resources. And then, you know, actually at the tail end of the Bush administration, the outgoing EPA assistant administrator issued this determination. And once that was issued, EPA uh, had to follow up on that. And, and the Obama administration started promulgating regs and rules around that. So, and, and, and there was a lot, we could have a whole podcast on that, as you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And maybe we'll have to, to bring you back just on, on that subject because, there, I mean, there are a lot of, and I'm going to, I am going to use the metaphor, downstream impacts of, of that ruling for, for Florida. And, and we, can, you know, we can agree or disagree as to, you know, the benefits or, or the harm of that. But I think the outcome is, you know, is, has certainly been earth moving in terms of uh, uh, dealing with these issues in Florida, for sure. But I, I interrupted you. You were talking about, I want to hear a little bit about it. The, the drilling in Southwest Florida. Yeah, there was 
one of the big issues nationally and and that was being explored was how does fracking and impact potential water quality and I think the Obama EPA was doing a big study on that and so there was some fracking activity in southwest Florida and of course DEP was called to look into that and there was a lot of public hearings and you know there was some enforcement actions surrounding it so that that all of course raised legal issues that had to be had to support. But when I when I say it was really a, a, a dream job from a, for, from a lawyer's perspective, Brett, you know, one of the things early on when I was just coming to DEP, we got a call from Governor Scott's office and the governor had been, had heard about and there were folks interested in the Apalachicola Chattahoochee Flint litigation that had died out really. And he wanted to to look into that issue. And shortly thereafter, the governor made a decision that uh, the way to go about that was filing a case in the U.S. Supreme Court called a, an original action. And when my first, my two years as the DEP general counsel, we, that got filed, you were heavily involved in it as well. So, Yeah, let's, I mean, well, let's skip forward to that because he, he did file the original action while you were there and then you leave DEP and you go to Carlton Fields, you and I spent a little time around each other when uh, you were at DEP. I think we may have overlapped by a year as well um, when I spent a, a short stint there, but we spent most of our time when you were part of the the Florida legal team that was you know suing Georgia and the Supreme Court in that original action. I, I characterize it when someone, when someone asked me, I say, you know, Matt babysat me through that process, but I think you have probably a more circumspect view of of what was going on at the time. Talk a little bit about your role as being once inside, but now outside, but brought into into that team to try to to help the Apalachicola River and Bay. Yeah, well, you don't need much babysitting, Brett. You're <laughs> you're a you were a great witness in the case and a great represented for the state and the region and the water management district. But yeah, you, um, I, I stepped away and, you know, my, my career, as I alluded to, has been at the intersection of law and policy. And so I stepped away from the policy aspects working at DEP and just going back to be a practicing lawyer. The mission was prove up this case that the Apalachicola River and estuary was being harmed by the depletions of water upstream by the state of Georgia. And so, yeah, I, I helped shepherd witnesses through like like yourself and, and other experts um, on riverine ecology and estuarine ecology. And so it was, we had a five-week trial up in Portland, Maine, as you know, which is ironic that two southern states were pulled up there. <laughs> and we, we put on our case. And uh, unfortunately, I think folks probably know the outcome ultimately, and, and that's a whole long story, but we didn't win. And it's unfortunate in my view that the court wasn't able to see what was at risk there. I, I hope the bay and the, and the river are still doing well. Yeah, I hope some, obviously anyone who knows me knows that I have some more personal gripes, we'll call it, with with the outcome of the case and, and George's use of water or, or as I would describe it, the uh, abuse of that water. But those are those are two different things. And I talked a little bit. I had uh, Fred Ashour, who you know well, on the podcast a while back. But those are two separate things. How I, how I feel about something in your mind and you look at something from a practical standpoint, you say this is, this is pretty easy to understand. But there's 
an enormous amount of legal wrangling that goes into that as well. Are you satisfied from a legal standpoint? I know you disagree with it because you you were you know involved on on the Florida side. It's like, but can you can you talk a little bit about how you feel about the conclusion of it from from those the legal arguments? Yeah. I- I think the main thing that I was disappointed with is the fact that the Army Corps of Engineers operates a system of dams along the Chattahoochee River from Atlanta all the way down to at the Florida border with Georgia. The argument came to center around, well, even if the Supreme Court gave Florida the water it was seeking, would the Army Corps of Engineers let it through? Their, their dam system, or would they hold it back for the benefit of Georgia? I think it's real unfortunate that the federal government didn't step up and the Army Corps didn't affirmatively say that they have they would you know meet an obligation to protect the environmental values that we were trying to highlight. And so, you know, the case really turned on that, uh, frankly. And I think it, it was a missed opportunity for the federal government to step up and agree to provide some allocation of water to yeah, and for me as a layman, those are the things that are the that are the hardest to to deal with is when you look at the decision about what the core is going to do and the statutory basis for the operation of the Buford Dam on the Lanier Reservoir also included natural resources and and habitat as well, not just public supply and uh, and all the other things. That was the part from from my mind is you know sitting from the the sidelines, not being an attorney, saying well, I don't understand why the the natural system there, why the the fishery doesn't get its due in that equation. I think the core argue would argue and has argued that that's not one of their purposes that Congress has given them for operating that dam system and that water management system. I think there's arguments to the contrary. It's on the state at this point to provide whatever protections and and for the bay and the, and the river system that is needed. Sure. All right. Let's uh, let's get past that that uh, discomfort. And so you leave Carlton Fields here in Florida uh, after the case, and you decide to go back to D.C. in public service again. This time at the Environmental Protection Agency. Talk about. That shift back to D.C., why you would do that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I guess the best things in life are sometimes unexpected journeys, right? And I was sitting at my desk one day at Carlton Fields. Uh, I was working on, of course, you know, Florida-specific issues mostly with federal issues here and there uh, based on my background. And I got a call from a friend who said he was working on Donald Trump's campaign. And this was after Jeb Bush had already withdrawn from the race for president. And my friend asked if I could draft some talking points for candidate Trump at the time on environmental issues. I did it. Really didn't think much else about it. But, uh, you know, things started to develop from there. And after the president, President Trump, unexpectedly won the White House, they called me shortly thereafter and asked if I'd be willing to come back and serve in the administration. And my my answer was, look, I've. Had a, I had a good time previously in Washington, D.C., but I think it would, you know, it would have to be something senior to make me move my whole family back up here. They said, how about general counsel of EPA? And <laughs> I couldn't turn it down. Yeah, that's a that is a that's a huge deal. You had to go through Senate confirmation for that one, right? 
That's right. And I will say, Brett, it's pretty shocking, but I was uh, confirmed on unanimous consent. And it's probably more about the Senate doesn't care about the lawyers as much as some of the policy people. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure. We'll t- talk about some of the the heavy lifts, the the issues that were really the ones that really made their way to to your desk. I mean, it's a it's an enormous agency. You you probably have many many attorneys. They every single case can't possibly come across your desk. How does something make it to your desk as the general counsel DPA? Yeah, and and there, you're right. It, it, there's a lot to talk about. But my priorities were really the president's and the administrator's priorities at the time, which were focused on really deregulation and cutting out red tape while still protecting the environment for the for the United States. What that meant and what that looked like, there were probably a couple things that were the most took up the most amount of my time. One, and you know, I know this is a water podcast, but I'll mention uh the Clean Power Plan repeal and replacement was an enormous issue, and that I was involved in helping uh, draft the legal legal rationale for the repeal of the Clean Power Plan. And that issue ultimately went to the Supreme Court and was dis- decided, and our approach was affirmed in West Virginia v. EPA. The other issue, more kind of relevant to your audience, is the waters of the United States. At the time, the Obama-era clean water rule had been paused by the courts. There was all kinds of litigation around it. I step in as the chief lawyer, and it's a, a total mess. Um, we started working on our own rule called the, called the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, and ultimately got that finished in 2020. And it was enforced for a while, as folks know. And then, of course, litigation surrounding that took that rule down as well. But I spent a lot of my time working on on those two issues. I I, I think other big issues as well were an emerging policy around PFAS, and we issued the PFAS Action Plan, which this current administration has now expanded and continues to work on. I, I will give one anecdote. I was I was sitting in my office one day being briefed by the, the lawyers in EPA's Office of General Counsel, and you know, at any given time, there are four to five hundred cases filed against EPA that were in, within my you know area of responsibility to defend and. I saw on the list a name called Sackett, Hmm. and I knew the case because it had gone to the Supreme Court back in 2010. And, you know, we're now talking, this is like 2018, 19 timeframe. And so I asked the attorneys, I said, hey, I thought the Sackett case was over. The Supreme Court already decided. And and they said, well, no, it was remanded back and went for a trial. And uh, EPA is still pursuing the Sacketts. Um, on the jurisdictional question, on the merits, it caused me concern uh, to, to hear that. <laughs> All right, let's pause for a moment to talk about my friends at Sea and Shoreline. As we in Florida wonder what the future holds when we face the storm season ahead, Sea and Shoreline is working to protect our coastline communities against severe storms by installing a variety of green and gray infrastructure solutions to make our cities and counties more resilient. These solutions include seagrass restoration, mangroves, oyster reefs, riprap, oyster breakwaters, and something called a WAD, which stands for Wave Attenuation Device. By installing their patented WADs, Sea and Shoreline can help protect our communities against sea level rise and storm surges by diffusing wave energy, stopping shoreline erosion, and even rebuilding shorelines through sand accretion. To learn more about how Sea and Shoreline can protect your community, visit seaandshoreline.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. 
Well, before we get deep into second, I do want to hear your perspective on that. But you had some some overlap from your DEP general counsel days and your EPA general counsel days in terms of the 404 assumption where where Florida assumed many of the, the duties related to, to wetlands. Can you talk a little bit about the basis for that and how you see it going at this point? Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I did skip over one of the biggest issues for Florida, is which is assumption, state assumption. When we got in office, you know, we were very, uh, the, the EPA probably more pro states' rights than, than any EPA since the Reagan administration. As your listeners may or may not know, while the NPDES program under the Clean Water Act is, has been adopted by, I think, 47 states now and has been being implemented, the 404 program at the time had only been adopted by two states, Michigan and New Jersey. And we thought that was an issue. We thought this was a problem. And Florida, I think, under the Scott administration, had been exploring whether it could take the 404 program. And we really started to look at that in earnest because by design, the Clean Water Act is ultimately designed to be implemented by the states. And there's no better state than Florida in terms of wetlands protection and and the capabilities that the DEP and the water management districts have. So to me, coming out of Florida was a no-brainer that Florida could take this on. And uh, my colleague, Dave Ross, who is the assistant administrator for water, felt the same way. He held a summit and states came in uh, expressing interest about taking the program. And Florida was the only one who really put the resources and time into it, you know, due to the credit of DEP and the governor. Has anyone approached uh, that issue other than Florida since that point when they looked at maybe how it turned out for Florida? Like, hey, let's, you know, let's take our shot at doing that as well. Are there any of those? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there were other states in discussion with EPA at the time. Arizona was looking at it. But even as recently as this year, I've read and, and heard Nebraska is very interested in the program. State of Alaska is interested in taking on the program. So they, there are still states, I think, that, that given that Florida blazed the trail in, in the most recent times and see how that's working out, other states are looking to that uh, leadership. So now let's go forward. You started to talk about it, but you when you left EPA, you went to Hunt and Andrews Kurth Law Firm, which is very well respected, still in the D.C. area, right? That's right. And so now we're looking at one of, I think, for environmental practitioners. This is utility folks, landowners, lawyers like yourself looking at at waters of the U.S., you, you're dealing with the outcome of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Sackett versus EPA. But there are really two parts to that, right? Can you, can you help listeners understand first the basis of the, the origin of Sackett versus EPA? Because I think we describe it as Sackett 1 and Sackett 2 at this point. Can you talk about, it maybe help create that, that distinction about where those cases originated and then how they ended up and what that means? Absolutely. So Sackett one, first of all, going back to all, it started around 2004 is my understanding where the Sacketts had bought a, a 
lot next to Priest Lake, Idaho, which is in the stovepipe northern part of Idaho. And they decided to fill a portion of their lot in order to construct. Um, if you've seen pictures, it's you know it's not too far from the lake, but it's also surrounded by other houses and development. And EPA ultimately issued uh, an administrative order to the Sackets saying they they filled jurisdictional wetlands without a permit. The Sackets wanted to sue, and they got the Pacific Legal Foundation to represent them, which is a public interest law firm that takes on a lot of environmental issues. The EPA said, no, you can't sue us. You can't challenge this administrative order because the Clean Water Act and, and principles of, of legal principles don't allow it. Well, EPA was wrong about that. And in 2010, all nine justices of the Supreme Court said the Sackets can sue. It went back and it only decided that question. It didn't decide whether or not Sackett's land was jurisdictional. So the case went back down. There was a trial. The trial court found that it was jurisdictional. There was an appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Ninth Circuit found it was jurisdictional, and they applied the significant nexus test that Justice Anthony Kennedy used in the infamous Rapanos decision of 2006. And under that test, found that the waters were jurisdictional, and that was the appropriate approach, according to the Ninth Circuit. So that's the background. What happened in May of uh, the, the case was petitioned, and the Supreme Court kind of, up to everyone's surprise, granted the case, and it granted it right on the question of what's the appropriate standard when determining federal jurisdiction. The, the court decided that question again on 9-0, the liberals and the conservatives on the court all agree that the significant nexus test is not appropriate and it's not consistent with the Clean Water Act's definition of water of the United States. In fact, the relatively permanent test is that the Justice Scalia used in Rapanos is the appropriate test. And it, by doing so, resolved decades, literally, of confusion about which is the appropriate test to apply. And there's there's more there's a, there's a lot more to the decision too on adjacent wetlands, but I wanted to pause and make sure if you have any questions on that. Yeah, I think one of the the questions is what does that now mean for Rapanos? Does that mean that only the portion of that old case that relates to to as you said the, the Scalia standard hold or is Rapanos now done and it's, and it's completely subsumed to only leave Sackett at this point? Great question. And Rapanos, the problem with Rapanos is there wasn't a majority of the court. It was a plurality decision. And so it was one justice concurring on different rationale and four justices that led by Justice Scalia. And so that that's what created the problem. And because of that plurality, there was never certainty about what the ultimate test was. So Sackett says expressly that the Scalia opinion and Rapanos was correct. So it adopts the Scalia opinion. And it adds to that as well. It, it provides even more clarity. But so now the law of the land is the relatively permanent test for jurisdiction. And according to Justice Scalia and, and Rapanos and Justice Alito, who authored the Sackett opinion, there has to be a, waters that are typically known or, or um, in normal parlance, the, the, the court says, as flowing water bodies that form geographical features such as streams, oceans, rivers, and lakes. So, and they have, they have to flow relatively permanently. They're not, 
They can't be things. The most obvious example, I think, is a, like dry wash out in the western United States that only flows maybe every couple of years. So it, it's it's a dramatic change from what was being applied by the Army Corps. From a layman's perspective, meaning me, when you look at these connections, when you look at how the court has treated the case, is this an instance of maybe, I mean, did the EPA overplay its hand in terms of what it was pulling into its jurisdiction? Or is it, you know, something more complicated and, and or maybe more simple than that? Look, I think that the EPA and the Army Corps built their whole program around the significant nexus test. But the, the root of the problem goes back to, I, I would say, 2008, when the infamous Rapanos guidance was issued embracing both the relatively permanent test and the significant nexus test. So that when that decision was made, it set off, you know, a whole policy and program in place. I really blame the courts for creating the confusion. EPA and the court probably could have been more, in hindsight, more circumspect in how they chose to implement the Rapanos decision. Yeah, and I guess um, I guess that's what I mean, Matt. Is is the uh, the devil is always in the details when you talk about okay, someone makes a decision or you know a, a law is passed, and then someone has to write rules and procedures and all these things for for how to administer it. Philosophically, one might say if the legislature had done its job in terms of describing what's supposed to be uh, taking place, and it makes it it makes it clear for for judges to and, and lawyers to to do their jobs. But but I guess but I guess given you know you've we've already passed that as like and I guess that's the thing that I want to maybe to talk a little bit about is those devils in the details when it comes to okay you have significant nexus and then somebody has to define what that means in practice right absolutely you know this is the great debate we're having at really at the national level is how much does Congress need to provide in terms of guidance to EPA or other federal agencies and what gaps can those agencies fill in? Because, you know, typically Congress can't do everything. They can't think of every fact pattern Mm -hmm. and they like to issue broad sweeping statutes. But really the Supreme Court started to ratchet down on how broad it can be and what, what gaps the agencies can fill. It's coming pretty clear after West Virginia EPA and the SACA case that if a statute is vague or silent, EPA cannot just substitute that with their own judgment and, and, and make up their own policy. If it's Certainly, if it's a major question of political and economic significance, they can't fill that gap. But they need to be careful because the court is cutting back on deference, and, and if your listeners may know about Chevron deference, which is simply the policy of deferring to agency interpretations of statutes. Um, and the court doesn't look like it's going to be doing that as much, nearly as much as it used to in environmental law. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That does seem significant at this point. And I guess that's what I meant by the EPA overplaying its hand, which is when you get to how you do something in practice, do you do it in a way that, that perhaps extend something far enough to get, say, the Sackett family to sue you. So, yeah, I think well, I just want to make one more point. The, the court really focused on because the Clean Water Act is a criminal statute, we can't subject people or in the court's view to criminal liability based on very vague standards. 
that because otherwise people don't know what the rules are and how do they avoid criminal liability mm. when it's not all it takes experts as you know to tell us where these wetlands are and so whether you fill them or you could accidentally walk into criminal liability without even knowing it. So from your current chair, what does this all mean for your clients, Matt? Well, there's a lot going on right now. And we've learned a lot recently about what EPA and the Army Corps are going to be doing in response to the to the Sackett decision. Most notably, earlier this month, on June 22nd, the Assistant Secretary of the Army Michael Connor testified in front of the House of Representatives about what the Corps and EPA are planning to do. And he gave some pretty good insights as to what's coming. Um, And then subsequently, there have been filings in a lot of the litigation that's going on around the country, of which I'm a part, explaining what the plan is. So we know a few things. First of all, by September 1st, EPA and the Corps say they will have a new rule. And that rule, according to Assistant Secretary Connor, is going to be a final rule. He made clear that he thinks, at least, that the SACA decision provides a lot of clarity. And there are going to be some nuances that people will always debate in his words, but he thinks that the decision does provide a lot of clarity. And what they've been doing and are already doing and um, is planning to, quote-unquote, surgically approach the amendment of the Biden 2023 rule and excise those things that the that were clearly found to be unlawful by the Supreme Court. So that would include, most notably, the significant nexus test, as we've talked about. He also went on to talk about a number of things that might be unaffected by the rule, so or, or the SACA decision that will remain in the rule. So the exemptions he made clear, the relatively permanent waters test, which mm-hmm. does appear in the Biden rule. Although my my take on that is w- the way the Supreme Court described it is a gr- good deal different than how the Biden administration had described it. And the continuous surface connection as well, he mentioned. So there's a lot of things that are going to be in this. And uh, the, the other thing I'd point out that I'm mentioning to my clients is he, he claims this is going to be a final rule. And when asked whether or not the public would get an opportunity to comment on that, he said, yes, there will be a mechanism. But I'll point out just kind of for the administrative procedure folks out there, usually uh, notice and comment needs to take place before a final rule. So if if they want to use one of these expedited procedures like direct final rulemaking, if the agencies get an adverse comment, which I think they will on one side or the other, that's going to mean that the rule actually will not be final by September 1st. And so now we're we're going to move into the speed round of our conversation. What professional accomplishment are you most proud of, Matt? I would say it had to, my time in Florida was fantastic, but being able to be the general counsel of the EPA was truly extraordinary and particularly in a time when we could work on so many regulations and try to make them better and um, function better for the U.S. economy. So I'd have to put that at, at the top of my list. Is there an issue or case in the past that you would have approached differently and why? Hindsight's twenty twenty, and I think we already touched on it in terms of the ACF case. Yeah. 
it wasn't all my decision, of course. I was just one of many people involved. I wish we could have worked more to broker a deal with the Army Corps and Georgia to try to get a resolution of that that was ultimately more favorable for the, the estuary. What advice would you give to young people who are just entering or are even interested in entering environmental law and public service in general? Because you did a lot of time in, in public service. Great question. I get this question a lot. And I think the answer is the area of environmental regulation and laws, I think, a growth area. I'm seeing it every day. And it's growing in different ways in different places than it grew in the past. But um, I, I still think it's a good area for young folks to get involved with, with whether on the policy side or the legal side. Your relationships are really important and never miss an opportunity to make a new connection. I like it. Matt, how can folks get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your practice and how you might be able to help them? Yeah, I'm, I'm on the web. You know, I'm a partner at Hunt and Andrews Kurth in Washington, D.C. We have a full suite of, of environmental regulatory assistance across all environmental media. So happy to help folks. And it's an exciting time with a lot of new developments in the law right now. Oh, good deal. I'll, and I'll make sure to put all of that, your website and all that information on the episode notes for folks that want to reach out to you. Matt Leopold, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. This podcast has been brought to you by Res and CN Shoreline. Don't forget to check the episode notes to visit their websites and learn more about how they can help you. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably even Twitter at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sworn for making the best of what he had to work with and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bow Spring from the Bow Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer.